celebrate Christmas. Uh, I'm looking around to see if I see any Christmas gifts, but it's hard to tell with uh, so many of you shopping at vintage stores, so it's uh, hard to, you know, kind of get the old from the new, so to speak. Uh, my name is Alan Love, as Steve mentioned, one of the elders here, and excited to uh, share with you. It's kind of an annual event for me uh, to, to speak here at Warehouse on December 31st. It's my trigger to evaluate the previous year and to think about the coming year, and so uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity to do that and now to uh, share with you kind of some of my thoughts about where I'm headed this year and what I think would be a great journey for you to join me in. Before we um, move away from the song, I think it's important just to give you the bottom line up front. And we're going to talk about Jesus being fully a friend. Uh, that's a, a part of his humanity that we can observe in the, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. And... Um, and really underscores the importance of friendships in our own life and uh, the importance of cultivating and prioritizing friendships. But the reason we would talk about that in a church on a Sunday is because the foundation for strong friendships is one of the remarkable things that the Bible teaches us, and that is that we have the opportunity to experience friendship with God. And so I think until you kind of have the message of a song like Pieces Land on Your Heart, that God has given himself to you completely. Jesus demonstrated his love for you while, that even though you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were running away from him, Jesus gave himself for you. When the, when the message of that sort of song, when the message of those promises, when the message of the gospel falls in our hearts, then it frees us up to be fully a friend. So if you want to tune out, uh, that's pretty much the, the big idea for the rest, of the rest of the afternoon. Everything else is just filler. No. So anyway, um, so holiday movies are always a big part of what we do. And of course, you'll recognize the guys that are about to come on the screen here. One is a villain. One is supposedly the good guy. And it always uh, forces us to ask, who's the richest man in town, Right. We said, who's the richest person in Charlotte? What are some, some names that come to mind? <laughs> Jerry is uh, pretty, pretty, about to be even richer, right? McCall, yeah, those are the, the names. Levine, Harris, you know, those are the, those are the kinds of names that, that come to mind. And those uh, uh, people, those families are very wealthy, and many of them are doing great things for our city with their, with their wealth, and we appreciate that. But... You know, this uh, iconic toast at the end of It's a Wonderful Life always challenges our definition of wealth, right? We go through the whole story, and you know how it ends with, with everybody at George's house dumping all their money into a big pile so he can pay off some, you know, financial uh, tragedy that's, that's uh, I guess... I really, oh, this is when his brother or his uncle loses all the money. Yeah, that's right. So he's got he's to kind of fill in the gap for his uncle being stupid and losing a bunch of money. And uh, so all of the town comes to sort of rescue George at the end. And his brother, who's always gotten the benefit, whereas George has always gotten sort of the consequence, uh, toasts at the end of the movie to my brother George, the richest man in town. And I, I, as, as many times as I've watched it and as emotionally unavailable as I typically am. <laughs> I cry every time. 
Even thinking about it, it's crazy. It's stupid. I'm embarrassed by it. But the fact of the matter, it does, because it, it sort of touches something that's, that's real down inside me that I can't, you know, kind of just stuff down. It says, you know what, that, that's probably right. You know, but do I live most of my life trying to be like Mr. Potter or do I live most of my life trying to be like George Bailey? I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between the two uh, because my definition of, of wealth really, really uh, uh, bounces around as well. So what I want to challenge you this morning is to sort of think about your definition of wealth and what it really means to, to build the things that lead to a wonderful life. Now, not only do we have holiday schmaltz from this movie to sort of stir us up about this, we have the benefit of a really unique research study uh, that was done at Harvard, started at Harvard College, now Harvard University, uh, over a 75-year period uh, where a simple but profound uh, research question was being asked. And uh, this is by uh, the current sort of uh, research leaders, a guy named Robert Waldinger. It's a great 12-minute TED Talk. You should listen to it. Uh, what Makes a Good Life is, uh, is the name of it. But he says this uh, sort of at the beginning of his talk. He said, what, what keeps us healthy and happy as we go through life? If you were going to invest now in your future best self, where would you put your time and energy? What if we could study people from the time that they were teenagers all the way into old age to see what really keeps people happy and healthy? Since 1938, this is really remarkable, we've uh, tracked the lives of two groups of men. So they started in 1938 with two groups of men. One, and it was men because it was a long time ago. You'll see the picture uh, here with two groups of men. One were a group of 19-year-old students at Harvard College. They were all men because that's all there were there at the time. So, uh, and there were no, there are no uh, pictures of modern Harvard students that are all men except for uh, an athletic team. So that's why I have this, uh, this group up here. But anyway, the, so it's a, stu- a group of Harvard students 19-year-olds, and then they found another group of 19-year-olds who came from the poorest neighborhoods of Boston, some of whom lived in tenements with no uh, running hot or cold water. So remarkably different groups of people studied over a 75-year period of time, and, and not just sort of casually interviewed. I mean, they did, they did uh, medical examinations, they did uh, interviews, they looked at, uh, you know, Income and earnings and, and career trajectory, and they talked to their spouses uh, down the road and their children as well, and really kind of dug in year after year after year into the lives of these two groups of, of, of people. Now, some went from the bottom to the top, and some went from the top to the bottom. Some became president of the United States. There was a president of the United States in this study group. Uh, Baldinger doesn't really, uh, excuse me, Waldinger doesn't really con- con- uh, communicate which uh, group the president came out of. But, um, but there's a president in this group. Uh, and um, they studied them over this uh, 75-year period, many of whom are no longer with us now, right? Because, you know, 19 years old, 75 years ago means you're really old now, right? <clears throat> and so... Um, so after uh, all of that, he asked the question, and I've got this, I think, on the screen, uh, this question. So what have we learned? 
What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we got from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. They said uh, a couple big takeaways. Social connections are really important. That's what they said. You know, and, and it's not just the, 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 the number of social connections that we make, but it's also the quality of the relationships that we make. So right now, just to kind of throw this back on, on you, uh, do you feel connected or lonely? Uh, say at any given moment, 20% of this crowd would say, you know what, I really feel lonely. Do you feel connected or lonely? Um, how would you assess the quality of your relationships? Are they shallow? Are they rich and meaningful? Are they somewhere in between? How would you assess the quality of your relationships? As I said this morning, I want to ask you to challenge your theory of happiness, your definition of wealth. You're at the beginning of a new year. You're likely to be thinking about the degree of happiness you experienced in the previous year and what can be anticipated for the future, uh, the year to come. So how are you going to evaluate This study gives us a very clear criteria. Are you building close personal friendships? Now, we're in the study of Jesus, uh, fully fully human. Uh, The the thing that we believe as followers of Christ is that that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. That we, we tend to fictionalize him as more one or the other, sort of this uh, otherworldly being who really didn't walk on the ground when he was here. He sort of just hovered and floated and, and uh, you know, spewed, you know, beautiful prosaic kind of, uh, uh, sayings. Or we tend to sort of naturalize him a little bit and say, well, he really was a man, not God. He was just sort of a, a great figure. But the Bible teaches over and over again that he was fully God and fully man. And what we've been doing over the last few weeks is looking at some of the fully human realities of who Jesus was. And today, we're going to talk about the idea that Jesus was fully a friend. Now, he had many relationships. He had a relationship with God the Father early in his life. We've talked about this in the series. He got left behind in the, in the synagogue, in the temple, and when they finally tracked him down and found him as a young kind of teenage boy, they said, you know, what are you doing? Why did you, why did you get separated from us? And he said, I have to be about my father's business. He had this sense of connection with God the Father uh, from early in his life. He had a relationship with his mother that, that lasted his entire life. Uh, even on uh, the cross when he's being crucified, he looks down and he sees his mother and one of his closest followers and he connects them so that she has someone to take care of her. He's honoring his mother all the way to the end of his life. He has a relationship with the crowds. He, he, he heals, he feeds, he teaches. Uh, you know all about that. He has uh, relationships with his closest followers. Uh, one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible says that he chose 12 from among them that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. So that the, 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 the essence of his training program, so to speak, was presence. He said, I'm going to invite you in closer so that you can be with me. So he clearly had a relationship with those uh, 12 closest followers. Uh, but but what, what I want to emphasize is what I see as maybe the most human aspect of 
uh, Jesus sort of relational uh, structure, and that is that he had friends. He was fully a friend. And you see this sort of come out in the story uh, that happens in John chapter 11. It says, now a certain man was ill, and this man's name was Lazarus. And he had two sisters, uh, Mary and Martha. And, and just in case you've forgotten, John reminds us that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, uh, Lazarus, who was ill. So we're kind of given this very specific detail to let us know that uh, there was history between Jesus and this family, uh, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, uh, brothers and sisters, but also friends uh, with Jesus. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom, you have, uh, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus had a known relationship with Lazarus. The one that you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he, uh, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So... Um, that's sort of an interesting, to me, juxtaposition of the fully human, fully God idea. So he sees uh, that, that he knows what's going to happen. This is not a big deal, guys. Don't get, don't get too worked up. So he's got this fully God awareness of the future, uh, but he's fully present in that moment. So anyway, uh, so then... Um, it goes on to say, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So again, it kind of reinforces this idea that he had a, a unique friendship with this family, with these brothers and sisters. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that's another interesting sort of comment, but we will, we'll, we'll move on from that. So then what happens uh, when Jesus eventually shows up? at the uh, place where Lazarus is and uh, where Mary and Martha are. That's verse 20. It says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in his house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Martha, and we know this from other examples, has a very frank relationship with Jesus. She said, you know, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But, uh, but even now, I know that... You, uh, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she had this frank relationship with Jesus, but also this faith-based, yielded sort of relationship with Jesus. Again, sort of setting that fully human, fully God sort of perspective in front of us. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise uh, in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. So now, so, so we know, and now see a little interaction with Martha. Now we're going to see an interaction with Mary. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her uh, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they were going to support her in her grief. But now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, just because I know a little bit about Mary's relationship with Jesus as opposed to Martha's, I read it with a completely different uh, sort of 
perspective or context because I think she has a little bit uh, different engagement with Jesus in terms of uh, more. She starts not with Frank but with Yielded. But anyway, that's, a, that's an interesting study to do about the, the two sisters and their relationship with Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest and easiest verse in the Bible to memorize, right? You can all do it right now. Check it off. New Year's resolution. Memorize the Bible. Done. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. That's such a human moment, right? That he's there. We already know because he's told us earlier in the passage that he, he knows where this is going. He knows Lazarus is actually going to walk out of that grave. <clears throat> he's going to call him out. But, the, but regardless of the future fact, that Lazarus is going to come out of that grave, Jesus is moved by the present tense loss of his friend. He's moved by the sadness of Martha and Mary, and he weeps. You know, and this is really a summary statement, Jesus wept. All of this has sort of led up to this one moment. It, it sums all of these facts together to say that, What I'm showing you is the way this man loved these sisters and this brother. This statement that Jesus loved Lazarus indicates that he, they had spent time together, that they had shared meals together, that they had had lengthy conversations, challenging questions that they were friends. And so we start with that, that Jesus was fully a friend. So as we look back over 2017 and anticipate what is coming to uh, uh, all the possibilities that are in front of us in 2018, I am declaring this, for me at least, the year of friendship. I have the example of Jesus, son of God and son of man, fully human, fully God, who was also fully a friend. And I have the evidence of 75 years of academic study, evaluating what makes the biggest impact on our lives from a health and happiness perspective, and investing time in friendships is sort of what I've declared as, the, as, the, as my primary focus for this year. So I'm asking and inviting you to ask, what would it mean to be fully a friend for you in 2018? So, a couple of things to sort of make this practical. The first thing is that the foundation, as I said at the very beginning, the foundation for meaningful friendships is friendship with God. Friendship with God releases friends from responsibilities only meant for God. Identity, well-being, ultimate forgiveness. You know, that's the foundation of that, that frees us to be fully a friend. And this friendship with God is both received and cultivated. Uh, 
James chapter 2 says, and the scripture was fulfilled, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. What that tells us is that friendship with God is received. Abraham believed God and then something was just credited to his account. It was called the righteousness of God. He didn't earn that. He didn't achieve that. He didn't ascend to that. He believed God and he was credited with righteousness. And the outcome of that was that he was called a friend of God. So, so at the very foundation, friendship with God is received. But then also friendship with God is cultivated. Um, Later in James, he also says, James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there's this ongoing cultivation of friendship with God as we draw near to him and he draws near to us. So friendship with God is the foundation for strong friendships. What is, how does that kind of come into play? So if you think about the, the pressure we put on our friendships, we put the pressure of, you know, inclusion. So you've got to include me in things for me to feel good about myself. And, and if I'm ever excluded, then I feel like I've been left out and, and, and I'm undone and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, despondent and all the things that result from that. Uh, that's, that's, that's making your friends God versus being a friend of God and friends with God. When I receive the gift of friendship with God, I don't have to relate to my friends as God. I can relate to my friends as friends and release them from a po- and, and relate to them in a posture of serving, which is really the second kind of point that we want to make practically this morning, and that is that the atmosphere of strong friendships is generosity and humility. And this is really a build on the first, right? When we're living out of our friendship with God, we can be generous with others, not grudge-holding or overly sensitive, but giving the benefit of the doubt and putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. Pride withholds, humility offers and extends. That's the atmosphere of strong friendships, generosity and humility. So what kind of atmosphere are you cultivating in your relationships? Think about 1 Corinthians 13, often uh, read at, uh, at, 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 in a marriage ceremony, but it's a great depiction of the atmosphere of strong friendships. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The atmosphere, this is the atmosphere in which uh, friendship can thrive. And really nowhere is this more evident than in your friendships or your relationships at home. What kind of atmosphere are you cultivating in your home? Can it be characterized as an atmosphere of generosity and humility? One of the things that's happened is Carl and I have experienced the empty nest years of life uh, is that we have more room to sort of keep tabs on each other right? Because we don't have the distraction of our children. So we can kind of keep up with who said what and who did what or who didn't do what. And, um, and you know, think about that. That's, that's a caustic sort of uh, list-keeping atmosphere. That's one in which friendship cannot thrive. It's be, it would be like pumping your home full of carbon monoxide. And carbon monoxide is odorless, color, colorless, 
tasteless uh, and toxic. So what do you need in your house to avoid, you know, the, the dangers of carbon monoxide? You need an alarm, right? You got to have an alarm that can, say, that can go off when, when that, when that uh, toxic uh, gas is in the atmosphere. And so you need um, that same kind of alarm for your relationships because the atmosphere of strong friendships is generosity and humility. And so when you find yourself reviewing a list of previous wrongs, when you are having conversations in your head that are disconnected from the conversations that you're having with your friend, when you are talking about instead of talking to, when you are shining the light on and, um, and uh, 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 ruminating on your sacrifices and contributions while discounting the efforts of your friend, you know, th- those are the kinds of things that should set off the alarm that there's some toxic stuff in the atmosphere. Really, you could just flip the language of 1 Corinthians 13 and say, am I being impatient? Am I being unkind? Am I being envious, boastful, arrogant, rude? Am I insisting on my way? Or am I cultivating resentment uh, when my friend gets their way? When I observe these kinds of things, I need to hear the, uh, the toxic atmosphere alarm going off and take immediate action to clear the air, pun intended. So, the foundation of strong friendships friendship with God, the atmosphere of strong friendships, generosity and humility. How do you make that practical? What can we do to say, what, what can you do with that at the very beginning of a new year as you kind of have all this world of possibility in front of you? Well, I'd say four quick things just to, just to kind of make this practical and, and we'll wrap up. The first thing I would say is the hardest, and that is look around your friendships and in, in the, you know, look for places where you need to release resentment with generosity and in humility. Because really, at the beginning of the whole process, uh, I've got to start by doing the internal work that prepares me to offer forgiveness generously and to repent quickly. And the only way I can do that is by releasing resentment with generosity and in humility. I got included in a group text a couple of months back. It was really odd. It was like 13 of my wife's friends and me. <laughs> and so literally the, the, the text came out. It was like, how do you people, would typically have been ladies, but how do you people, since I was included, define forgiveness? And... Literally, before I could even kind of process the words, there were like 15 responses. It was just like, Brrr. I'm like, this has never happened. What's going on? And I was like, I, I, I can't even wedge my way. As much as I like to talk, I can't even wedge my way into this conversation. But I was struck. I initially disagreed, frankly, and then upon reflection was struck by a statement that Wes Vanderluck made in this string of text messages. I said Steph, right? Oh, that was a big, that was a big mistake because this is Steph that I'm talking about. Thank you for the correction. Um, she said, releasing resentment 
is the internal work that we do to create the readiness to forgive. And I thought, wow, that is, you know, before I can forgive, really, someone has to say, you know, they, they have to want it, right? They have to want to be forgiven. They have to ask for forgiveness. But the work that I can do that predates forgiveness is the release of resentment. And so is there a blocker in a relationship with a friend that you need to release? Is there some readiness work that you need to do? And frankly, if you find that difficult, which it is, but if you find that difficult to the point of I can't do it, then I'm going to kind of go back to point number one, right? What's the foundation of strong friendships? It's friendship with God. And what's the, what's the very nature of your friendship with God is that he forgave you completely, fully, generously, enduringly, repeatedly, inexhaustively. And out of that comes the capacity to release resentment with generosity and in humility gets a little easier from here so just uh, relax all right so number two um, number two is take the first step <clears throat> maybe even in the direction of someone that needs you versus someone who offers you something I think about the difference in networking and friendship building I'm really good at networking really not good at friendship building networking is about consolidating and augmenting value, right? Who, who, you know, what can you do for me? What can I do for you? How can we help each other be successful? Understand that. That makes complete sense to me. Uh, friendship is not always about consolidating value. Sometimes it's about serving. Sometimes it's about giving yourself away. Some of us find the mechanics of friendship, conversation, questions, taking the initiative, setting things up, thinking ahead. Some of us find the mechanics of friendship a little more natural, so maybe we should look at uh, places where God is nudging us to take initiative and maybe people uh, that, that God is pushing us toward who may not find the mechanics of friendship as native. So who is the neighbor with whom God is nudging you to become friends? Take the first step. Just do something. You know, take the initiative. Third thing, replace Facebook with FaceTime. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing. Um, <laughs> But, 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 but I'm, I'm, uh, there's no trademark on FaceTime. Those are, those are literally just two words out of the English language, FaceTime. But <clears throat> I think that's just an important thing. We, we've given the thing that Im, Im, inhibits our ability to build friendships in some ways in our modern experiences is screen time. And sometimes that replaces uh, friendships. So just, just think about that. What would that mean? What, 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 would I, what would it mean for me to make more time for actual interaction uh, with people. And then the last thing I would say, which is something I really kind of uh, appreciate about my wife because she does this in our relationship, which keeps our friendship uh, fresh, and that is just ask better questions. We recently celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary, and at dinner, uh, yeah, well... I get it. I know. It's, you can't imagine what it would be like to live with me for 32 years. I, so I get, the, I get the applause. But the, but, the, <clears throat> but the thing that I appreciated is on our way to dinner, she said, I brought some questions. And uh, they were great. They were not profound. They were just simple questions like, hey, what's, 
What's something about our relationship this year that uh, was really meaningful and uh, that you really kind of look back on and say, hey, that was awesome? What was something that, you know, we experienced together that was really painful? It was just a series of, of simple questions that forced us to be known and, and know, to see and be seen. And I think that was a really important part of what sustains our friendship over time. And so I just encourage you to ask better questions. When you do make time for FaceTime over Facebook, show up with, a, with some better questions to ask. So, foundation of strong friendships, friendship with God. The atmosphere is generosity and humility. And there's some very simple things you can do at the beginning of a year to build the friendships that are going to be essential uh, to your life now and in the future. I want to close with just a couple of, of uh, sentences from uh, David White's, uh, I don't know if you call this an essay, his writing on friendship. I got this from Kurt Graves, who read this very uh, section at uh, in a special event for a, of a, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, and it was uh, so meaningful that we bought the book, and, and this is uh, what Carl and I gave each other for our anniversary. Um, and uh, there's a couple of things out of this section on friendship. It's worth reading the whole thing, but, but, uh, but just a couple of things that I would kind of highlight here as we, as we uh, wrap up. It says, but no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor of the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness, the privilege of being seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another. And so for me, I'll, right at the beginning, that kind of challenges my whole idea of this is my self-improvement uh, goal for the years to build better friendships. So I'll be happier and healthier as I get older. So I go, wait, wait, that's not, that's not, friendships are not about transactions. It's about being present. It's about being seen and being available uh, to, to see others. And so I just want to let that reshape my perspective on friendship. But in order for that to be the case, what he says here at the very beginning is <clears throat> this next, uh, this next uh, quote. Uh, he says, A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble, of overwork, of too much emphasis on professional identity, of forgetting who will be there when our armored personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in even the most average existence. So what he's saying here. More poetically is what the Harvard study defined academically and what Jesus illustrates for us in sort of living color of his fully human life on earth is that friendships are essential uh, for, you know, really experiencing the fullness that, that we, were, we were created to, to, to live out of. And in order for that to happen, I really think this next quote is, is just unbelievable. He said, friendship then can be sustained over the years, only with someone who has repeatedly forgiven us for our trespasses, as we must find it in ourselves to forgive them in turn. And the only way I believe that I have the capacity for that is to go back to the foundation, which is friendship with God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, the study of Jesus' life, both fully God, fully man. 
fully a friend, illustrating for us the reality of this importance in our life, something that we overlook, wait till the end when we need it and it's not there and miss it. Uh, But God, I pray that that you would give us just a year uh, ahead of building strong friendships and that that would be the essence of this community and, uh, and that it would be built out of our friendship with you. And so we trust you for that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.